Well, um, we're going to read uh, a couple of verses here in a few moments, but before we do that, let's get the table of contents, the first couple of pages there, and I'll go over that a little bit so you understand what's going on. And uh, We'll pray after we read, so I'm going to talk a few minutes and pray later. Uh, we just had a couple of folks already pray, so we'll, we'll uh, introduce this, and then we'll have a word of prayer. The table of contents. I've arranged these in their proper order. Now, there may be a few people out there who disagree with me. Um, uh, this is uh, what I feel is the right order of the parables, okay? Uh, and I have a, a good library and uh, the training to be able to put this together. Thank the Lord for that. Never be dogmatic in things that uh, you don't need to be dogmatic in. So this is not inspired. And it's not even copyrighted. It's my work. But this is what I believe is the right order of the parables. And if I'm here long enough, we'll get through these. And then after that, we'll maybe do the miracles. Maybe after that, we'll do Bible cities. But this is going to be our teaching hour. And uh, this is when you ask Bible questions. So on Sunday, if you have a Bible question you can't answer, ask it when I'm preaching. But you can carry it over to Wednesday and ask whether it's about my message or something else. And uh, we'll, we'll answer those to the best of our ability with the Lord's help. So this will be an hour of instruction for you. And we'll, we'll enjoy it. I just, I love God's word and, and uh, we're going to do the best we can uh, to make you uh, get a blessing out of it. But this is the order of the parables. Now the first 16 parables Jesus taught when he was in Galilee. So we call these a Galilean parables. And uh, that's where they took place. And you notice I have all the scripture now. Here's how to know what I'm saying. The first passage on the first line, Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5, is the passage we will look at. I put that first because it's the most thorough of the two passages. The second, in the, in the brackets, in the parentheses, is the parallel passage, but it's not quite as thorough. More detail, in other words, in the Matthew account than the Luke account. Now, I'll use a few words that you'll learn, and I, I like to make it simple, but sometimes I have to remind myself um, to make it simple. The word synoptic, synoptic, you'll hear that once in a while. It'll be a slip of the tongue. I'd rather make it easy and say it means see together, see together, because you have three Gospels that see things together, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is unique. In fact, 93% of John's material is unique to only John. All right, but the others quote one another. Most believe that uh, Luke probably talked to Peter and Matthew and the ones that were there and got his information from them. But all these men are different personalities and they all write differently and they're all unique. But they see things from a different perspective, but they were all inspired, meaning God breathed on them and told them what to write. It's, it's fascinating to me. So, the synoptics will, will, will look at the one that I believe is the most thorough, and, uh, and that's how we'll go. We'll go through these Galilean parables, then we'll go into the Prean parables. Now, Priya, the word Priya really doesn't mean a specific place. It means outside of, it really has to do with parables he told outside of cities, like in the desert or when he was traveling, maybe on the Jericho Road. So you can't really say they're, you know, told in a, an exact place. So that's the term Perea. 
And those will be the ones that we will go over next. And you'll we have little notes next to these, and when we get to each parable, we'll explain all these little things I do. Um, and we, we know that the final set of parables were the Jerusalem parables. There were six of those. So we have 16, 18, and 6. So what's that? 30, 40 parables. Now, uh, so you put that away, and we'll look at the introduction for a few moments. 40 parables is what we're going to look at. A parable is really an extended simile. Now, a simile is a little figure of speech used for a certain type of material. And really, it's more important for me to explain, explain the word parable because a simile is like a miniature parable. And we don't cover all the similes in the Bible because there's over 100 of them. In fact, some people put them in with the parables, some of them. So there's different opinion as to how many parables there are. And if it's not at least one verse or more, I put it on the simile side, and we're not going to look at all those. We're going to look at all the parables. Well, remember, a parable is not necessarily a true story. Jesus makes it very clear that they're not true stories. We'll see that. I'll show you that tonight. And he, he shares parables for a reason. Now, we're not doing a podcast tonight, are we? Okay. I don't know. Are we doing a podcast? We are? Okay. I didn't know that. If I knew it, I wouldn't stop in the middle and ask, right? But a parable is not a true story. Now, there are some people who argue over a few parables as to whether they're parables or not. Where I believe Luke 16 is a parable, I believe it's a true story. Now, that's kind of an ironic twist. But as I said, parables are normally stories that are not true but illustrate truth. Okay? They illustrate truth. The word parable is an interesting word. The Greek word means to throw alongside of. So Jesus would put the story out here alongside of something he wanted to teach. And there's reasons he told them. So we look at our introduction now, and uh, we'll see, I think I've said quite a bit of these, this, this already in the introduction, but parables are hypothetical, not necessarily true. And notice here, a parable uses things we understand to teach us things we don't understand. And they're often identified by two words. So you mark your Bible, when you see those words, oh, he's going to tell us a parable. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then he'll tell us a story that's not true, but that truth, I mean, the truth of the kingdom of heaven is illustrated in that made-up story. Okay, and there's parables in the Old Testament as well. You remember well when uh, David, Nathan confronted David and told him a fictitious story, it wasn't true, about someone stealing someone's pet sheep. You remember that? And David got all riled up and we're going to deal with him. He said, you're the one that did it. And David had to think, oh, man, you're right. I really kind of did that, didn't I? I stole the guy's wife. But, uh, yeah, it's pretty tragic. But that was a parable. And we'll, we're not going to look at those. These are New Testament parables. And, of course, these are parables taught by our Lord. Um, parables are stories told to answer questions or clear up misunderstandings. And never get caught up in the little details of the parable or the figures of speech, or the numbers, because there's only one main truth in a parable. Every scholar will tell you there's only one main truth. No matter what seminar professor you ask, these educated men that know the Bible language, they'll say there's one truth in a parable. And if you're not careful, you can get into a parable and find a little number or a little typology, and you can run off in a direction that doesn't make any sense and is totally false teaching. 
But you have to really be careful to find the main truth. And I will give you the main truth in every one of our parables, and you'll see it pretty clearly. Because our Lord is gracious enough to illustrate truth for us. Um, <clears throat> every parable, I've already said that. Uh, let me mention this. Um, the Lord uses physical objects oftentimes to illustrate spiritual truths. Also, his purpose is to reveal truth to his followers, but to conceal it from the Pharisees, from lost people. Our Pharisees were religious, but lost. So he'll share something that believers can understand, and he'll explain it to them, and lost people don't understand. You know, there's a lot of people that don't understand the simple truths of Scripture because they're lost. Lost people don't get it. They, they really can't even understand salvation for very long. They'll understand it when it's shared with them and the Lord convicts them and shows them they can be saved. They understand the message. And guess what happens to them two or three days later? They've forgotten about it. They don't understand it anymore. When it comes to in-depth truths in the Bible, they don't understand it. I often have thought some of these false teachers really aren't saved at all, even saved, because their teaching is so foreign from the simple truths of Scripture. I mean, the Bible is one book as a whole, yet 66 books, 40 authors, and yet it fits together perfectly. And when you're over here teaching one thing, I was talking Sunday about the diseases, remember? And I said, specifically, it tells us what diseases they were, the ones the Egyptians had, you know? But we hear people on TV take that passage and say, if you're a Christian, you shouldn't get sick. During the coronavirus, I heard the news broadcast they had a church on there, and they were interviewing people. Why are you going to church? It was right when the, the percentage of people dying was much greater than it is now. You remember it was like 8%. I mean, ridiculous. And now it's, it's less than the flu virus. It's still bad, though. Do your social distancing. I'm not minimizing it. But it's not as bad as it was. And they were at this church that had some false teaching, and everybody came out. They said, well, you went to church. Aren't you worried about it? No, I'm a Christian. I don't get sick. And I thought, boy, that pastor's taught them well. Scripture doesn't say that. Scripture, Luke would have given up his ministry as a physician. <laughs> if, I mean, it's just ludicrous to think that. And I, I'm always shocked at the things people say and teach, and I just had some thoughts, and I was about to wander off the trail, and I thought I better get back here to where I am. But there's the, 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 the message, excuse me, <laughs> was to reveal truth and conceal truth. Now look at Matthew chapter 13. Verses 10 through 17, especially verses 10 and 11. <clears throat> Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. The truth. Lord, help me to teach and to preach from your word that we can see the truth in the passage. Do not preach my opinions, my ideas, but to preach your word. For us to understand the importance of having a chapter and a verse for what we believe, and not to make up ideas and to, you know, have our own doctrinal issues, and, and but just to preach your word and let you and your Holy Spirit especially teach the listener. Bless us now. Hide me behind the cross in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we're looking at the por portion of Scripture that really tells us the reason for the parables. And uh, we'll look here. We really need to read all of it, but I really want to emphasize verses 10, verses, uh, 10 and 11. 
And the disciples came and said unto him, Why speakest thou unto them in parables? Why are you telling these stories? You know, we don't know what these, what are you doing this for, Lord? Now, the disciples were human beings and sinners. Jesus was perfect, but they certainly were puzzled, you know, and here their question, well, why are you doing this, Lord? And they weren't, I'm not, I, I emphasize that wrong, because they weren't, you know, discrediting the Lord. They were just wanting to know. So let's get back to and a little too uh, emphatic here, because they were just asking. And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. Isn't that something? As you, as you become a believer, you begin to learn. When I was 12 years old, just seven or eight years ago, 50-some years ago, unfortunately, I was in my basement, and I was reading the Gospel of John, and I got on my knees and trusted Jesus. I'd gone to Oklahoma's First Baptist for a few months and heard the Gospel over and over, and I just dropped my knees and trusted Christ as did all my siblings, and they baptized nine of us there at Oklahoma's Baptist Church. My dad and mom were Christians already. They were reared Christian reform, which is kind of like uh, Presbyterian. They were never immersed, so they were immersed there, which is the only method of baptism, by the way. The Greek word is clear that it means to put under. I don't know where sprinkling came from, or I can read their history and tell you where it came from, but it didn't come from the Bible, Okay or pouring, but clearly immersion. So my dad recognized that we were all immersed. But that summer I heard the Gospel of John over and over, and I thought, man, I've really learned a lot about John. You know, I was a scholar at 12 in John, right? And then, you know, I went to Bible college and learned a lot more about John in a Bible class, and then I started a church in my 20s in Panama, Central America, to the military, and... Uh, there I learned a lot about John. Now I'm really learning about John. Guess what? I'm still learning about John. <laughs> the Bible is so profound and so deep that you can never exhaust it. Uh, if if we, we refer to someone as a Bible scholar, they'll usually say, no. I'm preaching, you know, at one of the former, uh, you know, head of the Bible department, Tennessee Temple, I'm going to preach at his church. And he introduces me, and I always get up and say, please just forget all that. You know, I'm gonna, I, I was going to preach on humility, but I'll wait for a bigger crowd. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we, we talk about men sometimes as though, you know, they're so, so important. And we are in God's eyes, but unfortunately in each other's eyes, we're too important. In God's eyes... He considers us a pearl of great price, so God puts great value on my life. But you shouldn't. You should love me and respect me like I do you. When you put a pastor way up here, and when he falls, guess what? He breaks into a million pieces. Your pastor is just a sinner like you are. So I'm still learning about John. And I've been through it, and I've studied it, and I've tested on it, and been tested on it, and taught it in college, and all that, and I'm still learning. My point is, it just goes on and on and on. I'm 63. I have studied since 1984, 20 hours a week at least. That's a slow week, and usually 30 hours, and I still learn all the time. Isn't that crazy? So if you think that you're done learning, guess what? <laughs> You're going to keep learning as long as you're diving in. 
So the Pharisees weren't going to understand this, but he's going to help the disciples to understand it. And do you know who the greatest teacher is? Who do you think the greatest teacher of all time is? All right, for for us. The Holy Spirit. So when you're hearing a Bible message, I don't need to be your Holy Spirit. There's one thing I can't stand in churches for a pastor to get up and target someone. You know? And I'm sitting there thinking when I hear a pastor like that, why doesn't he let the Holy Spirit deal with him? Doesn't he think the Holy Spirit's capable? I have preached salvation, and someone come forward and say, I'm, I'm been an alcoholic. I'm giving up drinking. I'm like, what? I didn't preach on drinking. It's not me. The teacher is the Holy Spirit. So when you're sitting there thinking and your mind spiritually is going around here and there, that's not me. That's the Holy Spirit bringing things to your mind that you need to think about in your life and deal with them, right? And I may not even be talking about that. That's the greatness of the Spirit. He will teach all things. And people are at different stages of their spiritual development. And sometimes as pastors, we want everybody to think the same and look the same and act the same, cross the T and dot the I exactly like we do. And that person is not at the same place as we are on our walk. But guess what? They may be ahead of us in another area of their life. I mean, I've had pastors just as much say to me, you know, I've had them call me and say, I got a person in my church and they do this. And I'm like, okay. Why are you telling me that? I don't say it, but I'm thinking, what's he telling me that for? How do I deal with that, Brother Dan? I said, let the Lord deal with it. You just preach. Well, I said things, and I almost almost called him out on it. I said, don't do that. Believe me. When we have sin in our life, in our life and we're children of God, guess what? We're pretty miserable. <laughs> you don't need to specify my sin. I mean... It's just the Holy Spirit is the teacher. He'll deal with the sin in their lives. Now, that doesn't mean we ignore church discipline. I I think I already said this. When we have a discipline problem in the church, we have to confront someone and then two or three and then bring it before the whole church. We deal with sin. I'm not saying not to deal with sin. We, We have to deal with sin. But we don't need to be the Holy Spirit because He will teach the in depth truths, He will convict convict each of us differently and in a unique way and no two of us the same. Some of you are better Christians than I am in many areas of your life. You say, well, you're a preacher. That doesn't matter. I put my pants on the same way you do, as Vince Lombardi said. Okay, there's areas in my life where I'm probably a fairly strong Christian and areas I really need to work. And the Lord's got to really work on me because I got issues and I got challenges and so forth, you know. I mean, I'm undisciplined sometimes. <laughs> I've told some funny stories. This is kind of a funny story. Years ago, I was in Burger King, and I was trying to lose weight. I, at one time, I weighed 290. That's a big boy. I'm 245 now, so you can, can imagine. And I went into Burger King, and I knew I was overweight, and I preached a message on self-control and gluttony and all that. And I go into Burger King, and had this chocolate cream pie. And I got it, and I looked around. Anybody from the church here, and I had seven, eight hundred people in my church, so chances are. So I took that pie and I lifted my coat and I shoved the entire pie into my mouth. So desperate for something sweet. 
Yeah, what a terrible example I am of self-control. Now, a piece of pie isn't the problem. The problem was I want to eat a piece of pie every day. And if I have a piece of pecan pie, it leads to another piece. There's a lot of leadership in my life in food. You know, piece of chocolate. I can't eat one bite of chocolate. Are you kidding me? When I taste chocolate, I'm a goner, man. I've sinned. I've eaten a bunch. I used to, with my friend, we'd take a gallon of ice cream, a half gallon, and we'd cut it in half, and we'd just, right through the cardboard carton, he'd eat one, I'd eat one. Now i got a sugar problem. Surprise, surprise, i got a sugar problem. So my point is this. We all have sin. We all have struggles. And Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, you're going to understand this, but they're not going to. And I got off the subject, obviously. I went from the parables to chocolate pie. You know what I've been thinking. He answered and said, for you to know the mysteries of the kingdom, but for them it's not given. Now, someone read verses 12 through 17 for me, if you will. Just uh, one verse at a time. Read it, thank you, or read as much as you want. And when he's finished, let's get through 17. Now, I'm going to stop after each verse and make a quick comment. He shall have more of abundance, and those that don't have it, they don't have less. He's talking about understanding spiritual truths. Go on, brother. I'm sorry. You see, they, they can hear, they don't understand what they hear. They can see, but they don't see the spiritual truth. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Esaias, which saith, By hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see, and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they shall see with their eyes and hear with their ears and shall and should understand with their heart and should be converted, and I should heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For verily I say unto you that many prophets and righteous men have desired to see those things which ye see, and have not seen them, and to hear those things which ye hear, and have not heard them. Great. Isaiah chapter 6 is what he's quoting. But he said even people in the past, the Old Testament prophets, really wanted to understand the coming kingdom and the truths that were coming in the future Messiah never had that opportunity. Here Jesus, the Messiah himself, is teaching them. And he's saying, how many times did it repeat the idea that they need to be converted, but that they don't, don't understand, and that's why they're not converted and healed? He's talking to religious people, Pharisees. They were lost. And Isaiah looked to a future generation of Jews that would not accept the Messiah would not accept his teaching of salvation. And they're spiritually blind. Good eyes, good ears, they don't discern anything. 
So he clearly answered them. Now, the kingdom instruction is very practical for the church. Remember, Matthew is a kingdom gospel. And that's something you need to keep in mind because much of it's repeated in the epistles, but some of it is not. And there are things in Matthew, if you're not careful, they'll confuse you. I've been asked questions by Bible students for years. Why, 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 why? And it's so easy to see how we can get tripped up. For instance, Matthew will say, don't call somebody a blockhead. The Greek word there is, means fool. Or you'll be in danger of hellfire. And a young boy would say, I'm afraid, pastor. I've called people a fool. So it means I'm going to hell? No. Remember in the kingdom. Now, much of the kingdom principles are taught in the church epistles, right? Romans to Revelation. But much of the kingdom principles, remember, when they're in the kingdom, Jesus is sitting on the throne for that thousand-year reign. He's sitting on the throne. You're not going to call somebody a name and get by with it. He's going to be a perfect and righteous judge. Now, we don't, we, excuse, sorry, Mike. We don't worry about, we don't worry about the kingdom age because what kind of people are we? Well, we've been raptured and changed before the tribulation. Then after the tribulation, we come down with him to set up the kingdom. So we're perfect people. We can't sin. Okay, we have a new body. We have the mind of Christ. So we're not going to sin in that kingdom. So we're not going to call anybody names. But his point is, it's a hyperbole. He's exaggerating. Jesus quite often will say, I'm going to exaggerate here. He exaggerates intentionally to let them learn a truth. You won't even call somebody a fool in the kingdom or you'll be in trouble. Think of times that Jesus intentionally exaggerated to teach them. He'd say, you forgive your brother 70 times seven. What does that really mean? It really means forever. He doesn't mean just 490. My brother sinned against me. How many times have I got to forgive him? Seven? That was the number of completion. No, 70 times seven. And what Jesus is really saying there, you never stop forgiving him. So Jesus uses so many interesting ways to communicate truth. Figures of speech, parables, similes, allegories, typology. All those things we'll see in the Bible. And that doesn't include prophetic statements that have to be carefully studied to understand what is said. And so here, uh, we are, we're not late. Okay, here we find uh, that this kingdom instruction is often repeated. Now, we're not dogmatic. I already said this is the number of parables, anywhere from 35 to 95, different reasons for the numbers. Most books I've read are pretty much around the number I have. In fact, uh, very little differences. I've got so many books in my library I don't ever study anything without studying 10 different opinions or commentators on it. I also do my language studies to read the history, background of words, and, and what's going on. You know, when you look at a chapter, you want to know who the author is, why they're writing. All those things are important. And I want to be well-versed before I get up before people. So there's different reasons for various numbers, but we don't fight over that. If someone said, well, there's 41. I heard your pastor said 40. I got a book that says there's 41. That's okay. We don't fight over those things. When do we, what do we, what do we contend over? We contend over the fact that we're saved by faith alone. We contend over the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, the fact that Jesus is a sinless Savior. He's always existed. He rose again. He's coming again. There are things that we will contend over. But how many parables? We don't know. You know? 
And, you know, the different things that go on in churches, the different opinions and stuff, churches split usually over non-fundamental issues. <clears throat> churches split. Sometimes people don't even know why they split. Well, I left because so-and-so left. They left because they were mad at so-and-so and so-and-so -and -so left because they didn't agree with something in the preaching. I don't remember what it was. And you're like, you've got to be kidding me. The dominoes are falling, and why? And it's sad. There are times we need to stand for fundamental truths, and I will be probably even belligerent if somebody came to this church and challenged us on a fundamental doctrine. You'd hear me preach a little more testy than normal. That make it very clear that if you don't accept the doctrine of Christ, you're going to hell. All the doctrine of Christ. You can't discredit anything about Jesus. He's a perfect Savior. You know, he paid it all. And he did rise from the dead. He was sinless. And you hear all this heresy going on. Well, you know, some believe he had a relationship with this woman or in all this goofy stuff. It's sad, but hell, hell. You know, hell is, is, I mean, the God of this world is Satan. He's got his ideas and he preaches his sermons. And he twists the minds of people. So it's important that we rightly divide and stand for truth. Now, here are the reasons for various or different numbers. Sometimes similes are counted as parables or disagreement concerning some are synoptic or unique. Like, remember the first one we find in Luke 6 and Matthew 7? Some people may say, well, that's two different parables. Now, in that case, it's clear they're not. But there are some parables. You'll look at them and think, let me see if they are the same, and, and you'll have to study that out. But it's sometimes there's doctrinal disagreement amongst teachers. <clears throat> the first time you find the word parable, chronologically speaking, is Luke chapter 5 and verse 36. That's in your notes, so you don't need to look there. We're not going to look there. That's the first time the word is used. And the first parable is in Luke chapter 6 as well. So he shares that with us. Now on page 2, you see we have a lot of introductory material. We won't get to the first parable tonight, but when we do get that, don't go home and fill it all out because I want to go through it really methodically with you when we do go through parable number 1. Parables are divided into three groups. We've already said that. The Galilean ministry, which dealt with the character of the kingdom. The second group of parables dealt with the, the, the relationships of the kingdom, the quality, and finally the fulfillment of the kingdom in the final parables, Jerusalem parables, which talk all about the coming of the Lord, Matthew 24. There's some great stuff there. Uh, we will list in our table of contents, you'll have a list of all the similes and parabolic illustrations similar to parables. I'll have a list for you. In fact, I've already completed this whole notebook and you'll have a list in the end. The last week we'll give that out. So get a notebook and you'll have a good thick bunch of pages there. And the last one will list the similes and parab parabolic illustrations. Uh, and I'll give you an example here of those. For example, Matthew 5.13, Jesus says to disciples, you are the salt of the earth. We're not going to cover that one. It's just a simple verse and it's really a simile or an illustration of a parable. Of course, salt that's weak loses its flavor. It's only good to melt ice, you know. Uh, and, of course, the lead lesson there is don't lose your flavor. And then in Matthew 5, you're the light of the world. 
world is the word cosmos. And when we talk about the world in the pulpit, we're not talking about the dirt and the earth. That's our word geology. The word cosmos is what we're talking about. Our word cosmetology comes from that. And the word cosmos, the word world, really refers to a system. Not, not the dirt and the trees and the planet, but a system of evil. Love not the world or the things of the world. Love not the world. What does that mean? Don't love the system. In prayer room Sunday, we learn about the spirit of Antichrist, which already exists. He's in the world, and he's teaching people the wrong things. Just the discernment of people today is very sad. Far less people are saved than used to be in the old days. Our population is growing, and the gospel is still being preached, but people, a lot less people are saved. We need to keep preaching and teaching the word as people need the Lord. But... Here he talks about the light and the true light and so forth. And we are now the light because the true, the true light, we're the phosphorus, I guess we could say, because the Lord's in us. So we're now the light of the world. So there's a couple examples of ones we will not look at. Uh, we mentioned here the Jews considered Jerusalem to be the light of the world, but the disciples, uh, the disciples understood this parable because ancient cities were lit up. They were made of white stone. When the sun hit them, they were bright. And Jerusalem was so bright, they had this bronze gate, and the sun would hit it. And you could see how to get to Jerusalem from miles and miles away because of that beautiful gate. And cities were white. The Pharisees and Sadducees, when they would get a headstone, Scripture calls them sepulchers, they had the most beautiful white headstones, their seal on their graves, most beautiful carvings and words and all in white and Greek phrases on there. And what did Jesus say about it? You have these beautiful headstones, but inside is death because you're going to hell. I mean, that's, that's a, my paraphrase of it, I guess. It's, you know, it's not about the whiteness of the stone. It's about the purity of heart. The blood washes us white as snow. So... <clears throat> And Matthew chapter 9, um, several things here. I'm just going to read. And uh, in verse 16 he's of uh, Matthew 5, he's given a command for the future to live properly. And, you know, 1 Corinthians tells us we're a Bible. Did you know you're a Bible? You're an epistle known and read of all men. We're not written with ink on tables of stone. We're written with the Spirit of God on the tables of the heart. You're a Bible everywhere you go. So Matthew gives three great stories then in 16 and 17, they asked Jesus about fasting. And he tells two little illustrations, two parabolic illustrations to illustrate the importance of fasting. And he talked about don't put new wine in old bottles. Let me explain the physical teaching of that and then explain the application he uses. If you put wine in an old bottle, when wine ferments, it expands. So what's going to happen to that bottle? It's going to break. Jesus is saying the same thing. Don't take grace and try and put it into the law. It's not going to work. They can't put new teaching of grace into the structure of the law. They had people who were all caught up in the law that got saved. They were called Judaizers. They didn't want to get away from the law. They trusted Jesus as a Savior, but were still trying to take grace and put it into the law. It doesn't work like that. Law and grace are two different concepts. We're not under the handwritten ordinances anymore. Amen? So here, 
He says that, then he talks about taking a, a new piece of material and sewing it on an old garment. He said, don't do that. Why? It stretches the old, a new piece can stretch, but the old will tear up. It doesn't work to take the teachings of Jesus and the New Testament and force them in to the law. That's why the synagogue, the power of God in the synagogue came to an end and the church was established. The temple and the tabernacle, the presence now is in our lives. It's all changed now. We can't take the law. And unfortunately, sometimes we like to put a bunch of rules and legalism on our people. It's not scriptural, it's not scriptural to do that. Separation is one thing, but man-made ideas. I was joking with someone. I remember I heard, you know, when I was a young Bible college student, certain things that were wrong, and I never could find them in the Bible. I think this guy says this is wrong and it's not in the Bible. And I've heard like 50 of those things in my life. And I've wondered where they come from. And I concluded they come from the book of Second Opinions because they're just not in Scripture. And how many people's lives have been ruined by man-made rules? You can't take grace and shove it in the law and get it to work. The law's now to the cross. We're free in Christ to do everything except sin. In fact, we do have personal convictions, but what does Paul say? Let him that eats meat not judge him that doesn't. Let him that doesn't not judge him that does. So if you're a vegan, that's great. If you're not a vegan, that's great. The vegans can't jump the steak lovers, and the steak lovers can't jump the vegans because we have to be persuaded in our own mind and conscience. And there will be things in my life I consider wrong that you have the freedom to do. And there will be things in your life that you consider wrong that I don't have the freedom to do. Everything not done of faith is sin, so if you doubt, don't do it. But we have freedom, don't we? So outside of the scriptures, you do have the Holy Spirit teaching you uniquely, but different than he's teaching me. And that's the awesome thing about the Lord. In the body of Christ, in this room, we have, what do we have here tonight? 35 people? I don't know. Every one of us is different. We have different ideas and different opinions. Yet we're one body. We're one body. We'll talk about that Sunday. We'll be in the New Testament Sunday. So <clears throat> Christianity is the new teaching. It doesn't work in the old legalistic methods. And the disciples needed to learn to understand the need for change. And they did. The others didn't. Now finally, on the last page here, uh, during each exposition, we'll learn three things. And this is my little idea. If you can remember RLA, that's good. The reason Jesus told the story, the lesson he was teaching, and the practical application. We're going to be very practical. Tonight's going to be the most boring of all the lessons we teach because we're not filling in the blanks and we're not examining ourselves. Uh, but I had to give this sort of lecture-type material, I hate to say, so that you are ready for the parables uh, and understand what we're looking at. A few facts to remember about the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven includes everything God ever created, including good and evil. The kingdom of God, however, includes believers, the church, angels, so forth. Some believe the kingdom of heaven and kingdom of God are the same. That's okay. You can believe that. It's not something we fight over. However, we do realize that one day there will be a literal thousand-year kingdom on this earth. We don't argue about that. It's clear in Scripture. The word millennium means a thousand. We use the word millennium, it's not in the Bible, but it means a thousand and a thousand year reigns in the Bible because it says it'll be a thousand year reign on this earth. 
There'll be a new temple and Jesus will teach in the temple. The lion will lay down with the lamb. It's going to be awesome here on this earth. Then there'll be a new heaven and a new earth. Whole nother lesson. And the kingdom of God, the Bible says, is within you. You're part of the kingdom and the kingdom's within you. Why? Because the king's in you. And often we talk about the kingdom and the church as one and the same. And remember, the church is part of the kingdom, and we're in the church age now. We're not in the millennial kingdom now. I had a Presbyterian friend that said, oh, I think we're in the millennium right now. I believe things are getting better. I said, you can't find that in Scripture. When the thousand-year reign begins, Jesus is coming back to lead the saints. That hadn't happened. Jesus hadn't come back. If he'd come back, we'd all know it. And this would be a perfect earth. We wouldn't, have going on, we wouldn't have all this anarchy and all this stuff going on right now. He wouldn't tolerate it. He's not going to tolerate any sin, even our hypocrisy. Let's not just talk about them out there. Let's talk about us in here. Now, too many preachers preach about all those evil people out there, those gays. And that's all true. But what we need here in church is about what's going on in our lives. I've been to preacher fellowships and thought, where'd that come from? I heard him preach about this and that and this and that and nobody in here to apply to. They all shouted about all the other people being going to hell. And I thought, I didn't get anything. I've been to good fellowships as well. The point is, we need to preach what we need to hear. All right, and what the scripture says. We need to talk more about jealousy, envy, lust. Those things that plague us day in and day out. Insecurities. Lack of trust. Worried. We don't hear enough of that kind of preaching. All we hear is about all those terrible people. Those people out there and those politicians. While I agree with you, church needs to be a feeding center for us to grow and when sinners come in, to hear salvation. When sinners come here, let me know. Brother Dan, I, this friend of mine's here and he's lost. I don't care if it's on a Wednesday because you'll see well, Dan's kind of deviating tonight. He's talking a lot about the cross. And that's because if there's a sinner in the house of God, we want him to understand clearly. Jesus died on the cross for his sins. They need to repent of their sins and be saved. But we'll feed the sheep. So, here we conclude saying, most things are repeated. One day Christ will come back to reign. Matthew presents Christ as the king. Isn't it great how each gospel presents him differently? Matthew presents him as a king. Mark is a servant. Luke is a son of man. And, God is, and John is a son of God. And in John, there's no genealogical listing because God has no beginning and no end. No end. But where the two of the gospels have a genealogical listing because, uh, you know, Matthew needed one because kings knew their line and could prove their line. But Mark... And Luke presented him as a servant and the son of man. And, uh, and so he has a, a, a Matthew and Luke have a genealogical listing because he's presented there as a king who has a lineage and as a, a man uh, who has a, a, a lineage. But see, John doesn't need to list the genealogy. You know what I mean by genealogy, so-and-so begat, so-and-so, because John presents him as the son of God. All right, so I don't know, I got... I confused myself there, so I'm sure you're confused. <laughs> anyway, um, so next week we will dive into parable number one. And uh, our first Galilean parable, there'll be a two-minute introduction, and then we'll go through this. 
and you'll enjoy it. Wait and fill it out when we do it together. And at the end, you're going to be challenged to write down some of your own sin. So that last page will be private stuff. We won't, uh, we won't have you stand up and read what you wrote there. Okay? And I'll tell you, let's just look. I'll just read what that last question is. And here it is. This is right on an example below of things you say and do which are judgmental. And I'll ask you to write that down. You may be too embarrassed for someone next to you, but you can write it down at home after next week's lesson. But my desire is for you to understand why he's telling this parable and how it applies to you. All right? That's what we're going to do. Because I want you to grow in Christ by learning and make an application. And I know tonight was a little bit difficult to sit through, but uh, just feel, pray for the... You, you must have prayed when I was a college professor for the four, four kids that had sit in my classes. But uh, sometimes teaching is very needful in our lives, so we do some here. Uh, questions about the lesson or something else, something I could answer next week. It's long. Any Bible questions? Keep that in mind. And if you have them, write them down. You can give them to me, drop them in the offering plate, or ask me on Wednesdays, okay? But a lot of times we have questions about something we don't understand in Scripture. If you have a chance to learn, then, then ask the question, and we'll, we'll, we'll uh, help you in that area. All hearts clear? All right. Let's see. Gary, would you dismiss us?